You're listening to Reawaken, a podcast by The Humane Clinic. Our hosts are Humane Clinic therapists Matt Ball, Rory Ritchie and Bernie Maywald. Our theme music is Hope by the talented Addo Mull. Everywhere people, in every place, all of the countries and each race, need your hope. That's what this word is in need. Hope is in the water that sprouts the seed. Hope is the thing that stops you bleed. Welcome back to uh, another reawaken. How are you doing today, Rory? Yeah, I'm good. Well, we're going to do a check-in. Yeah, very sure. quickly. Yeah. Cool. Do you want to go first or? Um, yeah, I'm happy to go first. Um, I was just making a coffee in the kitchen, and I was thinking we've talked about a lot this morning, and then I thought, oh yeah, I forgot to mention that I had a really nice weekend and went away for the weekend and actually relaxed a little bit. I'm kind of discovering that I am able to do less and less lately, so I actually kind of read a book, stopped thinking about things, mm. eased off a little bit, had a few hours of what felt like actual relaxation. Um, so that was really nice. and I've kind of caught up in all the things we were excited and agitated and passionate about this morning. I forgot to mention that I just had a really nice weekend, so... yeah. That's all I really wanted to offer. Just that I, I had a good weekend. It was good. <laughs> yeah, nice. Thanks. How about you? Where are you at? Oh, it feels nice to hear something. <laughs> um, and maybe it's, you know, we have been caught up this morning and we're going to talk about that, but actually my weekend was awesome. I went yeah. to Mildura with one of my daughters for a roller derby boot camp and contest thing. And, um, yeah, it was just epic to go away, a weekend away, and enjoy the roller derby. So, yeah, I came back feeling like, oh, that was a pretty cool weekend. And just, as she would say, not to flex, but uh, my daughter's pretty good at roller derby. So I enjoy it. I just love watching her do it. She's like my derby hero, and I get to skate on track with her. So, yeah. Thanks for reminding me of that. I feel pretty good. So we were going to just get straight into it today. And what we thought we might do is I'm going to read... Um, just a post that was put on Facebook that started a bit of a discussion online. It's also on LinkedIn. But I guess it sort of speaks to something we talk about a lot here. And the first half, I guess, we'll discuss the guts of it. And then maybe in the second half of the podcast, we can talk about what we think might be able to be different. Because that's what we're trying to do, right? Mm-hmm. Kind of say what. Yeah. So i just read this. There is so much co-design, upscaling and innovation language in the mental health industry. Does co-design, or as we call it, code sign, really support the voice of those most oppressed and with the least options, power and voice? Does, co-des- does the co-design process really start with the potential for participants to design services, or is there already an agenda, mostly by the dominant voices and discourses, including the evidence-based language? Whilst big organisations, those with their voices heard loudly, use language that sounds and maybe even feels good, Is there an inherent disconnect from those oppressed in the system and society, given the funding, employment and opportunity to set up a co-design process and is agended by the organisation that benefits from it? So even if it's not financial, there's credibility and maybe ongoing money. Um, Many times there's not even money for the plans of the co-design. So we're doing co-design. We we know there's no money. So what's that about? when considering upscaling of 
grassroots projects, do we see the project co-opted to fit better into the dominant narrative and lose its primary value? So is upscaling about bringing innovation and new ideas into big systems? Because if it is, it's not working. Um, and when seeking funding for upscaling, does this preclude grassroots voices from accessing resources with big organisations and government support? And so upscaling ideas to access um, that leads to compromises of the model coming from the ground up, so it fits with the current narratives so, and discourses and funding of the leaders and their organisations. So upscaling ends up becoming about advancing a bigger organisation rather than the actual beauty of the projects that innovate. And what innovation do and have we actually seen in mental health services in Australia in the last 30 years? Are outcomes actually less oppressive, traumatising, harmful and better for a person who is churned through the mental health system? Have we moved away from the basics of really sick people getting benevolence, even if that's not helpful, in a patriarchal model, not a human-to-human -human reality? Is it time to remove the idea of government and NGO difference when big NGOs are now delivering, in many circumstances, government services, just without the government name, and engaging in the same diagnostic and non-human rights restrictive um, models that have been the mainstay of government services for many decades? All professions and disciplines engage in the above, but like to say their words and actions are different, but forget the traitorous collaboration they engage in. Does and has the branding, does and has the branding and the mental and the industry of mental health render itself just an economic neoliberal ideology that creates employment rather than does what it's set out to do? as in a response to distress? Has it become irrelevant in the lives of those most distressed in our society who become objects of the industry? Offering human connection, human to human, genuine human to human models that don't become redundant in moments of crisis, risk, or outdated ideologies of power becomes a radical, challenging, or even rebellious action and has become something to co-opt and adapt to the palatable, branding-orientated, market-driven industry. Of the, of the mental health sector. So now is the time for authentic cooperation and not traitorous collaboration. Time to celebrate humanity and mutuality. And that was a statement that we just, just say a statement, we just put something out on Facebook. Um, and in, in part, it was, I suppose, driven by lots of our conversations, really, where we're, we're not really sure we're seeing much out of the co-design process and the innovation space and the upscaling other than to create more of the same. And that's certainly true of people most marginalised in our systems. Mm. How was it taken on Facebook, it being that I'm fortunate enough to have removed myself from that space? What Very was the response like? A wise decision. <laughs> uh, I can't tell you what's going on on Facebook, Rory, because yeah. uh, you're not on there. Oh, right. No, um, <laughs> Like, there was a lot of people liking it and, and various emojis and some comments. Um, and so I don't really know, because that's part of the whole social media branding mental health industry thing, right? If you get likes, that means it's good. So we carry on doing it, and that's kind of like the pseudo-evidence-based services we now have in situ. But certainly Facebook liked it more, and it seemed more excitable, right? Whereas LinkedIn... A lot, the same number of impressions, because you can see how many people have seen it, right? So the same number of impressions for all our posts, but much less likes. And my interpretation of that is that LinkedIn is this kind of idea of a business platform. So you see lots about the wonderful changes in the mental health sector on there, mm -hmm. whereas you see more grumblings on Facebook. Yep. 
And so it seemed to me, I, I, was, I was left with the questions about what it was like for people on LinkedIn who were invested in the industry, ourselves included at some level. Mm. You know, I don't want to say it's everyone else. And how palatable is this stuff for them? Whereas on Facebook, there's a kind of, we're allowed to name some of the salacious injustices a bit more. So I, I'm, I think it was taken as, well, my interpretation was, because it's all just about interpretation, right? my interpretation was lots of people wanted to interact with it on Facebook, which says that it was probably of interest. Because as we know, Rory, for the most part, people only engage in pointless junk on social media. That's right. We found that if you really, if the rubber's really hitting the ground and you're doing something, then quite often there's kind of cicadas chirping. <laughs> but the question of something tends to engage people. Yeah. The question of something maybe happening engages people. Kind yeah. of the evidence of something really happening quite often, or I'm not sure if that interests me as, interests me as much as the, the idea of it. <laughs> Whatever <Yeah>. that's about. <laughs> yeah, and I guess where we've got to is it's kind of there's some sort of effort to engage meaningfully. But the idea that something might change feels quite nice, so we like it or mm. we put an emoji or a little right. comment. Mm. Whereas if, if, you know, I'd take the podcast, for example. I think one time we talked about the podcast coming back and there was an endless number of people. Podcast like, question mark, I believe, was the post. That's right. People loved that. Mm. Not so many people want to find the podcast and listen to <laughs> yeah, it. Yeah, right. And that feels like a pretty solid metaphor for the innovation and co-design and um, upscaling ideas of the mental health industry. Everybody says, yeah, yeah, let's do that. But what do we mean by innovation? Most, most services, it seems to me, or most innovations and new ideas and co-design are run by the institutions that have an investment in running them. Right. And I know there'll be people saying, no, that's not real co-design. We don't see any other co-design for the most part. Right. And more often than not in our context, almost always services that reach a lot of people in Australia are government funded, right? Yeah. So we have a government that's elected on a platform that's of their making and their choosing. Yeah. And then we have this idea of co-design and a lived experience voice and these kind of things informing services or how services are run and where does the power really lie there well it lies in the government who's been elected on a certain platform to deliver that so then we see that whatever is whatever voice is heard in the co-design is really just wedged into the priorities of the government of the time yeah and it would be a very rare case that somebody would be able to design a service and pitch it to a government and bring that into their budgetary processes over the few years of the election cycle yeah. and actually have that taken up as opposed to the reverse happening. So that we talk about that quite a lot, don't we? Yeah, and, th and that's, that's a really good example of the point in that statement I just read about traitorous collaboration. So... What are we doing when we say to people, there's a co-design opportunity here for innovation and it's going to be run by a big organisation, but we know, we know that the opportunity for genuine change isn't there within that election cycle, probably no funding for it. Mm. So is that not traitorous collaboration? Come in here, do this with us. 
it won't look like what you talked about. It'll look like what we can get funding for and shape up under the current cycle. So no one's a winner in, in this. No one's, we're not suggesting that people are intentionally doing harm. Well, I'm not. No, no. What I'm suggesting is the, the industry of mental health has become like every other industry. It's become a self-sustaining industry. So like the coffee industry. And a good example for me would be when Starbucks, and we're not sponsored by them, that's not a product placement, <laughs> but when Starbucks started up in England and they had cafes everywhere, I remember there was a lot of talk about ethically produced coffee. So there was a lot of sort of early, oh, this is injustice to exploit people to make coffee. We don't hear much of that anymore, right? Because yeah. the coffee industry and the employment industry around cafes and coffee, of which I engage in, I'm not, I'm not a separate <laughs> It's become about building itself, not become about some ethical, sustainable position. And I feel like the mental health industry was probably, the modern mental health industry was probably born out of good hope, but has become mm. like the coffee industry. How much of it can we get out there? Who can profit from it? Who can say that they've got the best coffee shop when in, in reality most coffee shops are broadly the same except for the bespoke few? Right, and that's what I wanted to get to when you're speaking of upscaling. I assume maybe, yeah, maybe the very first Starbucks had quite nice coffee. I wonder what the coffee now in a Starbucks in London tastes like, the first Starbucks in Seattle. Yeah way back when and how much effort actually goes into what's being made and what's being served as opposed to it just being upscaled into this huge profit-making organisation, which then we may take something from the grassroots or the name of something or in the name of something, but to upscale it and make it risk-averse to the level that's palatable to a government department and a minister, we may hand it over to a big NGO who's already got millions of dollars of contracts with yep. the state or federal government because that kind of sorts out some of the risk for the department and the minister that, well, this organisation can be trusted with funding and equip the funding and generally toe the line because they've got quite a bit invested in continuing to, re- continuing to receive large amounts of funding yep. from the government and all of a sudden that's, none of that has anything to do with the grassroots organisation approach, community-driven yep. thing that is now being upscaled on a, on a larger scale and we lose what it was all about to begin with, which eventually makes it quite meaningless or purposeless. Yeah, and becomes about the industry continuing its cycle rather than the individuals who might access and support these services. And I think we watch different organisations move into those paths and they become the voices. But what change has happened? And, And for me, and I think I probably said this on another podcast, for me, the most oppressed people are still getting hospital, seclusion, drugs... ECT and out to a very barren community service. Can I ask you what year was it that you arrived in Australia and started working as a mental health nurse? 2011. Right, so about a dozen years ago, 12 years ago. Yeah. Has anything changed in 12 years in the context of, let's say, South Australian mental health that you can see? Well, there's, there's new things and we've lost things, but they're all cyclical on governments and funding cycles. So take the Southern ICC, which was an intermediate care centre in the step-up, step-down model, got shut under the last government, 
I don't know this, but they've just announced, the new government have just announced they're going to open another 24, hour, 24 beds. Why are you opening another 24 beds? Because to me, that sounds a lot like what we've spent the last 10 or 15 years doing, which is shutting down beds, right? Sure. And then now we're going to opening up beds. And you're going to use the building that was about emptying beds out of the system to create new in-system beds, seems to me. And I'm, again, it's not about getting at individuals, but it's, it, to me there's something about saying, what would it be like to try something new and us all risk where we land in that? Because that's scary, scary experience to do that. And, I, you know, we're not immune to this. If they were to fund our Just Listening community seven days a week, there'd be massive risks about us beginning to look more like the old system. So although Just Listening might be an innovation to take community members, not lived experience, not nurses, not social workers, not psychologists, not any people from the community and demonstrate that they can deliver an alternative for people in psychotic, suicidal distress, crisis, that feels quite exciting. But if they funded us to do it seven days a week, what would be the implications and the pressures to do things more normally, yeah. if you like? And, and the pressure when the money was there to maintain our funding would govern that we might start to shave the edges off a little bit. So the upscaling would start to mould it into whatever else is out there. So the other thing we've seen in South Australia is the Urgent Mental Health Care Centre, which, you know, I think some people benefit from it, but we, we know that some people come here to tell us what they're experiencing and go there because they like the comfy chairs, the microwave, and the fact they can cook their lunch there. Now, that's kind of cool. There's two different things. But some people specifically tell us they come here because they know if they say those things at the urgent care centre, they'll be detained. So what have we shifted? We've created another environment that might have nice chairs and a, and a microwave, but you still can't go there and readily talk about what you're experiencing. And those are the dilemmas we find ourselves in. Because I think when they set that up, they didn't intend it to be like that. It was intended to really embrace people. But the act, the models, the risk strategies, the, the vying for ongoing funding, that governs that it shaves its edges off. Right. Yeah. So wait, I just want to pick up quickly there on you speaking about the act. So before we can do anything in mental health, there's the Mental Health Act, yep. which legislates what happens when yeah. somebody's deemed to have a mental illness and flows on from there. Yeah. So then we get into, can government really deliver something different when it's already set in stone in legislation that there will be interventions that take away people's freedoms yep. in these certain terms? Yep. So then we look to the community doing other things without government funding yep. in order to treat anyone in any different way other than what's prescribed under the Act or the way the Act plays out in real time, despite the wording of certain parts of the Act. Yeah, and what we hear is how hard it is, and they are looking at the Act. Well, for me, we've spent an awful lot of time and resources on so-called advocacy to change things in the system, but we still have a Mental Health Act, which I don't think it's even controversial to say would breach the Human Rights Acts around the world, because... Mm. It's not fit for purpose in terms of the justification for assessing whether someone meets the act. You have to have a mental illness. Well, mental illnesses are an idea. So the idea that you can then be detained because you've got a mental illness when not everyone agrees with the notion of what a mental illness is, 
becomes a very awkward idea that we're going to remove people's liberties based on someone's opinion. So, so I think, yeah, it's a really good point you make that we first need to look at what's in place before we can start to pretend we can change things. Yeah. Yeah. So I think we're going to come back after the break, aren't we, and sort of see whether we can talk about what our meanderings are about what could change. Yeah. Remind me after the break, I, I want to talk about then how can we help somebody responsibility is not the right word how can we how can we help somebody take charge of what they actually want and be alongside somebody in the community to help them go and do what's meaningful to them outside of a system system or an institution or a doctor or a professional yeah how can we say well this is in your hands it's your life can you tell me what's going to be good for you yeah i will come back to that and i want to say and on that how do we support the supporters to do that? Because there are a lot of people that want to do things differently. Mm-hmm. And those are the people we want to celebrate, right? So, yeah, let's come back to that after the break. Cool. Thanks, Thanks. Rick. Welcome back. Thank you. A very quick break. Very quick break. Just a quick change of clothes. Yeah. That feels like a different day. Yeah, almost. Almost. Yeah, time's a funny thing, isn't it? <laughs> Does time exist, Rory? <laughs> well, hmm. seems to. Yeah. At least in our perception. Some, sometimes. Nice. So we're back and um, yeah. we're just going to talk a little bit about so what of what we talked about before the break, which was, mm. you know, our mental health services actually providing to the needs of the individual or has the industry become its own industry right who's the industry serving yeah you mentioned it's almost become self-serving which we see not just in the mental health industry in the ndis industry when it interacts with mental health and people are said to have a psychosocial disability yeah is it actually serving the people we'd hope that it would serve which is human beings out in the community that are in distress Mm. and like in some respects you know, the NDIS or the, the, the National Disability Insurance Scheme has changed the landscape of how we do mental health services. And in a way, I, traditionally I'd have been in favour of that because the old vestiges of the institutions of the past have been rocked and shaken around. But it, it seems to me that mostly it's still the same people in charge of the money and mostly the big players are still dictating what happens. So, yeah, who, whose interest is it in? And in complete contradiction contradiction of any kind of recovery approach model that yeah. we can experience things in our life, that the circumstances in our life can change, that different yeah. experiences can come and go. Once we have a diagnosis under the NDIS, then we're said to have a lifelong disability and require this support forever. And that's not to talk down support that people need, yeah. but how do we empower people to say... Actually, I've got new things going on in my life and I might now like some support to try and stand on my own two feet. Even if there's failure involved in that, how do we support people to fail, whether it's whatever they might do in life or whether it's to attempt to reduce some medication or change something in their life? How do we support somebody with the experience of doing that, which then leads to more empowering and good experiences in life that we can wake up the next day and go, well, yesterday I achieved this, tomorrow, uh, the day after 
I might try and do it by myself. I don't need a support worker or a mental health nurse or a social worker to hold my hand in doing that. I'm going to walk forward myself and see what happens. Yeah, I love that you're explaining this because it feels like it really opens up the story of who's it for? Are we giving people the opportunity to try things and if they move away from a scheme, go back to a scheme. So if I have a NDIS plan or I'm even under the mental health team or whatever and I leave it, I leave my plan behind or I leave the mental health mm-hmm. team because I'm trying new things, how easy is it for me to go back and say, oh, I tried A, B and C, I just need a bit of support with C? Mm. And they're like, well, no, you, you know, you've yeah. left that plan behind now. And it's Exited like, oh. on such a date, yeah. so unfortunately. Yeah. Because the truth is that if you get detained... They can open your service up very quickly mm-hmm. under the mental health team, for example. And if, if it gets political, you can get quite a quite quick NDIS plan, mm-hmm. turnaround review. Mm-hmm. So how do, we, how do we ensure that we're all working towards supporting people to have this kind of really genuine flexibility of services? I mean, we see it here sometimes. Some people come to us. There's a real fear about them exiting therapy here because that might have a knock-on effect on other areas of their plan. Their, their, their budget for their self-choice and control of their supports. And one of the things I'd be interested to explore is how do we get to a point where you, you, know, you don't have to come to therapy yeah. and if you want to come back in a year, you can. Right. And you can continue to get the other supports that are really valuable. And that's also the same in the mental health system. You know, how, do you, how do you get to see a care coordinator once every six months because it's good to just check in on what you're doing but the system doesn't work like that. You're either in or you're out. And so then I think that takes us, that's the systemic stuff, and then, then it takes us to, as a worker, I'm happy to talk to you, and I think you're going to talk to yeah. as a participant, kind of side, how do we all take responsibility? Because it needs everyone in it in order for anyone to do it. Mm-hmm. And it feels to me sometimes like we're the system, the individual workers, and the participants are all waiting to make sure everyone's taking responsibility together. So then it's hard for anyone to take the lead on that. And that's when we get to talking about an industry. It might take people to be brave enough to say, you don't need my services anymore, or this service that we're funded to deliver isn't actually working the way it should work. And yeah. But the fact that it's all threaded through a capitalist market economy where we're all selling our labour for a wage, there's so much invested in just continuing to do what we've always done. Yep. So in order to speak up and say, this is not working, it takes a really brave step, which some people have done in their life, which is to cut off their income and say, this isn't right, this isn't right for me, it's not right for the people I'm working for, and I'm going to make a stand and walk away from this. But it's a very hard thing to do when people have all the responsibilities of life and supporting families and people they love and themselves. And and that brings us to it, doesn't it? The, the, The participant, the person themselves in the end ends up taking the biggest chunk of responsibility and risking the most in their life to slowly or gradually or completely move away from the system not knowing what fallback right. they've got. And yet I don't do that in my everyday life within my family. So why do I have to do that in another support area within my life? And, and um, I, you talked about the economy and I suppose we were talking about that before the break. There's something about the, the, the mental health economy at the moment feels a bit like a bear pit. And I kind of use that as a kind of, um, you know, the, the, um, the stocks and shares market. You know, you go in there and grab what you can and turn it into right. a profit. Uh-huh. And it's not 
Well, I think it is a bit like that yeah. in a variety of different ways. You know, what's available? Right, buy, 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 sell, sell, sell. You know, and that, that feels really crude because in the end, the individual ends up taking responsibility because it's their life. How do we come into deep human connection? How do, I, how do we see the, the politicians come and deeply connect, not as a show of this goes on Facebook so I can say I've consulted with these people, but I wonder what it's like for someone in a really small little town in South Australia who can't afford housing, who's doing their best, they've got an NDIS plan, but they're not sure how this is going to work out for them and they'd really value a worker at the mental health team as well but that's not really you know and really get a feel for stuff because I imagine it would be really beautiful for the politicians and then the workers and the individual who should be at the heart of what we're doing and then maybe we could start to take some responsibility I feel like I slightly deviated you from talking about what we might do as the supporter with a person In can you say more? In, uh, in terms of Empowering someone, supporting somebody mm. in institutions, systems. You said you wanted to talk on um, the worker and yeah. I was going to talk on the participant. Yeah, do you want me so, to go first or do you want to go yeah, first? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, I suppose as a worker, I think that we have to look at things like, yes, this is going to threaten my economic right. stability. Um, this is what I've been taught. I mean, my background is as a nurse and as a psychotherapist. So what was I taught as a psychotherapist? I was taught a very Freudian model. Um, and I've realised that most people don't want that, uh, it would appear. And in, from a nursing point of view, I don't want to be attached to the nursing model that says we've got tasks to do to improve people's lives. I want to be attached to mental health nursing models that say... I'm equally human as this person and this is going to be scary for me, not because of the other person, but because I just want to make myself accountable, vulnerable, responsible to genuinely follow this person. And then I now run a business. And what happens if my business goes out of business? Well, I do think my ethical and moral responsibility is to put people's lives ahead of my business. Right. And yet... You know, it's really easy to say, but I, I hope I have the integrity that if Humane Clinic ceases to become viable because it's not a service that's needed or wanted, then Humane Clinic doesn't need to exist. Mm-hmm. And I hope if that happens, there's other services that are meeting the needs of people better, not just services that are better branded, better marketed, better co-designed, better upscaled, but saying, I need to take responsibility to notice the moments when I'm prioritising my business needs, my professional registration, my early theoretical learnings over the needs of the person in front of me. And that's, it's going to be challenging. It's no, I've got a teenage daughter, as you know, and it, it's no different to realising that when my daughter turns around and says things like, you say you trust me, Dad, but you keep saying, you know, I know I can trust you. She says, if you really trusted me, you wouldn't need to say that. <laughs> You know, and every bit of me wants to bite back and go, no, well, you know, I know better, I've lived longer in the world. And it's like, oh, oh, okay, if I really want to hear her and empower her, she's asking me to stop saying those things. Mm-hmm. And what that does is it gives her agency in having been heard. And I need to manage my anxiety about having a teenage child growing up, exploring the world. And I think if we, I'm not suggesting our, any clients are like children, I'm saying 
the same anxieties about my stories of professional responsibilities uh-huh. and business responsibilities will always dominate what I do. As well as holding on to your knowledge and wisdoms and learning as you were talking about the models that we're mm. taught as professionals. We often see, particularly in our trainings when we're trying to teach new approaches, people are very, there's a lot of inertia where people want to stick to, no, but I, this is what I invested in. This is what I paid thousands upon thousands of dollars to learn over X amount of years. This is the way I've always worked. It's very difficult to look at that from a different angle and say, hang on, maybe I can work in a different or a better way. And that's, I think quite often it can be heard as someone saying, you've been doing the wrong thing all these years, which... I don't think is the approach to no. take to it. Maybe you and I, me in particular, could be a bit more nuanced in how we, yeah. how we approach yeah. that sometimes. Yeah. Um, but, yeah, I think that's part of it, that we need as professionals to be open to pivots, large or small, in the way that we're working or the approaches that we're taking yeah. because otherwise how does and when does anything change, as we spoke about in the first half? How much has changed in the last dozen years in South Australia, aside from a bit of waxing and waning yep. with the election cycle? And, and that's when it becomes about branding. That's when the tokenistic phrases yep. all kind of find their way out, whether that's within the political right. sphere or individually. And so one of the things we see is people come on a two-day workshop and like to put on their social media profile that they've trained at the Humane Clinic. Fine, do that. What does it mean? Mm. Just, we're just attaching ourselves to mechanisms of, you know, branded ideology. And I'm not saying don't, don't do that. I'm saying, can you use that to remind yourself of the values that you enjoyed learning about and enact them? Um, so I think from a professional point of view, that's where I'm coming mm. from. And new words come along, the language changes, but what we're doing looks quite the same. A- absolutely. Right. So, absolutely. Um, I think safe space feels like it's a new one. Yep. Emerging. Well, it was alternatives, wasn't it? It was ED alternative yeah, yeah. for a couple of years. Which, before that, was too dangerous when Just Listening first came about. We were advised that saying it's an emergency department alternative, an ED alternative, that's not the guy that's too out there. Until that became the language, and now it feels like we're moving past that. But most places still just look like the emergency department. <laughs> Absolutely. And the bottom line is, and this is really important, the bottom line is, is in 99% of spaces I see, if you say the wrong words, right. then emergency services are called. So is that because we really believe that's the answer or is that a risk-assessed, brand-risk, um, profession-risk-orientated approach that says, oh, if someone says A, B, and C, then they, they, yeah, I've got to call someone more skilled or more clever or in brackets that can take the risk for me. Right. So saying it that looks the same as ED wasn't quite the right language uh, because the language might be different. The building may look different, but hiding, hiding in the bushes is still the Mental Health Act behind everything. And if you do or say the wrong thing, the same legislation kicks in and we end up at the same point. And what, about, what do I need to do then as the, the professional provider mm-hmm. in taking responsibilities to say, I've looked closely at the Mental Health Act and when we, when we go to the Mental Health Act tribunals with people, we're not trying to get them off the, 
the orders, we're saying, has the legislation's right. broken, but has the legislation at least been applied? Right. And if it hasn't, it's my responsibility to stand there. What comes with that? That, that comes with a lot of suspicion, a lot of chatter in Adelaide. You know, the, the various groups in Adelaide in the mental health system have been not even very quiet about their um, defamation about me because I've dared to suggest that um, mental illnesses are not a fait accompli and that we can't mm-hmm. actually show that they're true. I'm not trying to say people don't have distress or people can't use labels. I'm saying there's a legislation... It's a pretty weak legislation, but there's a legislation. Can we at least make sure that we've met the bar of the legislation to ensure someone's human rights are removed from them? And, and, And that's my responsibility as a professional. And so if you look at that as the overarch, and then you break that down to when someone's got choice and control, what are we restricting them doing? You know, when we take someone to an appointment, how do we get them to behave? Or do we let them behave how they want? You know, if someone comes for therapy with us, I was taught that you had to spend 50 minutes in the room. What does it mean if someone wants to jump out of the room for 10 minutes and have a smoke and make a phone call? Is that all right? Well, maybe if that allows them to engage in the session that's useful to them, maybe that's okay. But that's a challenge to me. That's a challenge to my wisdom and my knowledge, my control and my power. I'm not there to exert my control and power and wisdom over someone. I'm there to support them to have experiences that can relate to their world that are useful, I suppose, I think. Yeah. And, I, and maybe that's the time where you could now talk about what you're going to talk about, about the client, the participant, the, the person. Right, and it is because it's a good segue into it and I th- thought, oh, I'm glad we got there. That's, I'm really hearing something there. So if the professional ha- takes their responsibility to not make it about them and their wisdom and their power, their stature. How then do we support someone to do something outside of the system if that's helpful to them? Mm. How do we say, oh, what I've been doing isn't helpful. What could we do together? Or where is the place that would be helpful? Yeah. Is there a path where you feel safe enough to do something completely outside of the system that doesn't look like a mental health intervention because that system hasn't been helpful to you in the past? Um, Yeah, I want to give an example, just a really basic one. And this is my thing, but mm. park runs are all over the country (laughs) on a Saturday morning. Could it be that your mental health supports is just looking on a website for someone to find out their local park run and them going to their local park run, either with you, without you, with their friend, on their own, whatever. But could, could it be useful enough of me just for that person, even to have mentioned, oh, I'm thinking of going to park run this weekend, I might have a look on the website, you know, just talk it through, and I don't need to intervene, and they can take control, and then they can report back what value it was being around people, maybe offering to volunteer, maybe walking, not running, making loads of choices. Right, so we might break down the imaginary line of mental health, health, the us and the them of people who don't have a mental health diagnosis, Mm. no distress, no sadness, no stress, know their responses to those things, know what they enjoy doing that makes them feel good. They might go to park run, 
they might go and play footy on the weekend, they might sit at home and play some guitar. Yeah. Well, why then is what makes a person without a label's life good any different to what makes a person with a label's life good? Why are the mm. interventions different just because somebody's been given an arbitrary label? They're the same human being. They're yeah. both the same species capable <laughs> of distress, response to threat, and also happiness, joy, love, fulfilment. Yeah. Yeah. And, but it, it takes away the power of the professional knowing, doesn't it? Right. So I was, I was just reading an article about an American footballer in the NFL ending his life this week. And um, obviously it was a lot of shock that this highly paid professional athlete ended his own life. So that's, that's the opposite side of it, right? We wouldn't have predicted that, but we do think we can predict other people's responses and distresses because this is the domain of knowing as a professional. Well, maybe we don't know. Right. Maybe what we can offer is human relationship mm-hmm. and that allows both both sides to take responsibility, feel able to take responsibility, and from an existential position, creates freedom. Right. You know, like I, I, I was, yeah, I just love the idea. Love the idea that people could be a therapist here and be a client here. Um, people, people, yeah, you can do both roles. We don't have those rules in society. We have the lines, as you said, the imaginary line. Well, the imaginary line of mental health is. I don't know if you can see this. If you're watching on screen, you can see that my head, where we identify our mental to, is connected to my body, which is where our physical health is to. There isn't a line. So it's not, <laughs> it's not one or the other. Yeah. Our health, our well-being, our humanity is what we share, rather than me being a specialist in your head, mm. which doesn't really exist. Mm-hmm. And then I also just want to jump in and say that may actually open us up to be able to wrap somebody's life in love and compassion and support in the moments that they need that and be patient and alongside them to be able to then support them when they don't need it as well. So we're certainly not saying, oh, just get on with it, you know, get on with it. Everyone's the same. It's not, we all have different experiences of living and responding to what's going on in our environments. But maybe if we hold on to the kind of relentless optimism that things can change, maybe it's easier to sit in what's going on now and be patient because we know that in the next moment things can be different rather than feeling that nothing's ever going to change so this person's annoying or refer them on or... Mm wrap them up in a system or a service or a drug that's just never-ending. If we hold on to things can change, then it's easier to not have to change them, right? <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Because they will change yeah. themselves. Like, I think this is a great example. I, um, I injured my ankle at the weekend. Uh, I think I said it earlier. But, and this, I was in real pain in the night, but I didn't want to get out of bed because I was comfortable. And uh, <laughs> so when we got up this morning, my wife went and made coffee and she said, oh, do you need anything? And I said, oh, I'm going to come and get some ice to put on my leg. She went and got me some ice and put it on my ankle. It's just a really kind thing to do, right? And then, and, and so, so she, didn't, she didn't need to sit with me all night because I had some pain, but she was able to see if there was anything I needed and then offer that. And then she carried on with what she was doing. She didn't need to then sit with me, watch the ice, ice in my leg. And I want to jump in about the 
mental and the physical. I want it, it might have reduced your swelling a little bit. I wonder if you sat there and left it on for the twenty minutes that was required to not reduce. Not quite, not quite. Yeah. yeah, but it was probably quite nice to lay in bed while your wife got you some ice and you had somebody looking after you because you had a little boo boo. <laughs> I, just, I just really appreciate yeah. it. Yeah, yeah. and yeah. she was there for two minutes. Yeah. but. It, she says, is there anything else you need? No, I'm all right, thanks. Yeah. I just really needed that to just numb my leg, right? Yeah. Didn't treat anything, yeah. just, just changed the sensation. And then I got up and took my own meds. So I didn't actually need her to take yeah. my meds yeah. for me, count them out, pop them in a Webster pack or whatever. <laughs> you know, I was perfectly able to go to the counter and get some meds and take them. And so, yeah, you're right. That wasn't a mental health problem. It was a health problem that it was really nice just to have a bit of interaction with someone when I needed it, mm. someone available mm. but not persistent, and I reckon tonight, if I asked her to help me with it, she'd help me again. Mm-hmm. Just because she's helped me and I've managed to get on with my day doesn't mean no more help. Yeah. You're not discharged, Matt. But I imagine if you lived alone and you were by yourself, you could have quite possibly just stayed in bed all day and been miserable. Yeah. And not done anything to help the head or the or body. The, yeah, yeah. 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 I'm conscious of the time, shall yes. we? We ought to wrap it up, aren't we? Yeah. I wonder how people will find our, our short break in between, but um, I've quite enjoyed our second half, yeah, uh, so our chat, where yeah, we got okay. to. Yeah, I'm glad we did it. Thank you. Yeah. Thank you. All right, see you next time. Bye. Hey, everyone. Some of the upcoming workshops and training at Humane Clinic in the first half of 2023 include Accepting and Working with Voices, Working with Psychosis and Trauma, The Power Threat Meaning Framework, Mental Health Treatment Order Advocacy, suicide narratives and our six-week just listening training to learn more about our workshops visit humaneclinic.com.au or email us at info at humaneclinic.com.au everywhere people in every place all of the countries and each race Need your hope, that's what this world is in need Hope is in the water that sprouts the seed Hope is the thing that stops you bleed Hope is the ivory in the weed So give hope, and live hope And when your kids are hungry Feed them hope, if the system bleeds you dry Have hope, if the situation makes you cry Have hope, cause now it's time to dry your eyes And hope, that that'll keep your dreams alive I hope, that you hope Cause everyone's future is resting on your hope Can take the worst thing and turn it around Hope can find the lost that was not to be found Hope can make the loser them start gaining ground and Hope can turn your pennies right back into pounds This hope can be rebuilt even when it's been killed And if you believe, your hope will be fulfilled But people lie, just to raise your hope Just to make you think that they're helping you cope They're selling you eggs without no yolk They're wearing you down until your will is broke This ain't real hope, they don't feel hope They real hope and deal hope and turn it into false hope And we give up on this world like it's a sinking boat We let each other drown instead of flinging the rope We're turning the place into some kind of joke But we can't laugh, we can't lose hope In these times while they commit these crimes Because there's nothing else out here keeping us afloat Hope is elusive, a glint in the eye That something is exclusive, a thing they can buy 
won't make excuses, they just sit and ask why Our mistakes are conclusive, hope we'll just die But I wouldn't lie, singing all lullaby Give hope a try, and hope gets high You'll be bereaved, but you'll also receive Have hope, can be deceived, you've just got to believe And hope, don't let it leave, or ever receive Just hope, and then one day, you're going to succeed You can't live without hope, don't go without hope Hope will keep you warm when you're shivering with cold Hope will make you young when you're tired and old Hope can make a bright man hearty and bold But hope can find the truth that has never been told Cause some people take hope and some people fake hope But you are the people, you people here You're the ones that I feel are sincere You're raising my hope, will hold your hand when you're feeling secure Hope will find a way through any long door There's a floor. Hope will fill your belly when you think you need more. Stop disease when there isn't a cure. Hope will do it all and so much more. And so much more. And so much more. And so much more. Hope will do it all. And so much more.